We left the Israelites last week on the banks of the Jordan River at a place called Gilgal. There, they were resting while the men recover from their circumcisions. They're about to press their first attack and they've chosen Jericho. Their presence in the region is no secret. All the surrounding city-states are watching to see what happens. If you'll remember the rules of war that the Lord gave them, they do not go into battle until the priest has blessed them and anyone who is afraid or has unfinished business at home is given the opportunity to leave. And they always consult the Lord before going into battle so they know whether the Lord will be with them or not, in which case they wouldn't go, obviously. You can imagine the Israelite warriors' surprise when Joshua gathers them to go over the battle plan and says, what we're going to do is take the Ark of the Covenant right up to the walls of the city and march silently around it. One complete revolution of the city wall. Then we'll come back and camp here for the night. Can you imagine the looks the men gave each other as they listened to this? I'm thinking the only reason there's no outright grumbling is due to the respect they hold Joshua in. Joshua continues, we'll march around Jericho like this one time every day for six days. Then on the seventh day, we'll march around the town seven times. This time, seven priests will blow seven ram's horns the whole time. The rest of you will march with them silently. Do not say a word until I give the command. Oh, and don't forget, when we take the city, remember to spare the household that has a scarlet cord hanging out of the window. That is the household of Rahab. Joshua adds, and this is important too, the Lord has told us to devote everything in this city to him, all that is living as well as all the possessions in it. All of this first conquest belongs to the Lord alone. Do not take any booty for yourselves. We are not keeping anything this time. The word here for devote is kerem. It's the same word we have for harem, meaning set apart. It is the term for when something is made completely unusable to us and is therefore sacrificed to the Lord entirely. And you know from all our work so far that it applies to burnt offerings and anything that is completely burned up as belonging to the Lord. And we know that whatever is devoted to the Lord in this way is itself made holy. In addition to the story of Quran Dothan, we have lots of examples in the sacrificial system, including the sacrifice of the red heifer, where the ashes themselves are holy and are used to cleanse what is impure. And so they do exactly what Joshua says. Every day for six days, they march silently around Jericho. You can imagine the terror building inside the city as the men of Jericho watch their certain doom circling them ominously every morning. How long would this go on? Finally, on the seventh day, the tension breaks. The Israelites again march around the city, but today the priests are blowing loudly on ram's horns the entire time. The city trembles. After seven times around, Joshua yells, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. At the warrior shout, the walls of the city fall. It literally says the walls lie prostrate. Joshua sends two spies to Rahab's house to bring her household out to safety. And after everything has been completely destroyed, Joshua pronounces this oath over the ruins. Cursed be the man who tries to rebuild Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay the foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. And so Jericho lays in ruins for many years. We run across a single verse later in the book of Judges that says a man named Hiel rebuilt Jericho around 870 BCE. His firstborn son, Abiram, died when he laid the foundations, and his youngest son, Segub, died when he finished it. So a word for the skeptics here. There are a lot of ways to look at these stories. You can take them absolutely literally but you won't be able to find archeological proof to support the narratives. 
On the other hand, you can take them absolutely metaphorically. For example, the walls falling down could mean that the soldiers manning the defenses fled and the Israelites simply entered without opposition. That would explain how Rahab's house in the wall could still be standing. Or you can take the view that it's somewhere in between, that there are elements of actual events in the stories, perhaps from a different time frame, because archaeologically we know that Jericho was in ruins by the time the Israelites got there. There is there are people that have spent their entire lives uh, and their reputations trying to prove this story about Jericho. And the archaeological um, evidence is that it did not happen, at least the way it's described at the time it's described. But I can sit in the pew with you regardless of how you look at it, because the point is not exactly when or how the walls fell down. The point is not whether you take that literally or whether you take it metaphorically. We have to untangle ourselves from the gift wrapping and look a little deeper to find the gift. What were the Israelites to understand from this totally weird battle? Why did the Lord do it this way? Why is this story important enough to pass down to us? We'll do some of that work in our breakout session today. Well, after this great victory at Jericho, the Israelites are ready to do, to do the next town, and this town is named Ai. Just like before, Joshua sends a few spies to scout the city. The spies return and tell Joshua, this city is nothing compared to Jericho. Joshua can send a small battalion of two or 3,000 men to take it. So that's what they do. Imagine their shock when the few men of Ai absolutely rout the Israelite warriors. Joshua tears his clothes and falls prostrate before the mercy seat. What happened, Lord? Now all the people of this land will take courage and come against us. They'll see we can be defeated. Where were you? And the Lord says, why are you even asking me this? I told you not to keep any booty from Jericho, but you have. You have taken what is mine. Have the people present themselves to me tribe by tribe, and I'll show you who's done this. He is the one who has violated the covenant between us. So early the next morning, each tribe comes before the Lord. This is an example of a time the Urim and Thummim might have been used, or perhaps some other form of casting lots. The tribe of Judah is chosen. Then the clan of Zerahites. Then the family of Zimri. And then finally, Achan comes trembling before Joshua. With great pity, Joshua looks on Achan and says, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and tell me the truth now. Achan cries out, It is true. I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon. It's silver and gold, and I took them and buried them beneath my tent. They are there now. Immediately, Joshua sends men to dig under Achan's tent, and there they find the booty, just as he described. And Joshua and all of Israel take Achan and his family and stone them. This is their customary way of execution, and it is customary, as we have seen, that the entire family be executed if the patriarch commits a crime. Now, I know this whole destruction stuff is distressing. It seems very barbaric to us. But you have to remember that these people are living in an extremely barbaric time. This is what normal looks like for them. You can think Game of Thrones here. This is all they know. All the booty and all of Akan's possessions are burned, and everything is buried under a pile of rocks. I want to point out that this story, too, seems to be a composite or stylized story. It says the Israelites named the place where this happens Akor, which means the Valley of Trouble. In Hebrew, that's the same as the man's name. His name is Akan. It seems somewhat contrived to me that the man's actual name would have been Trouble. This reads suspiciously like an etiology, a story for how the valley got its name. And as a cautionary tale with a protagonist who is not necessarily an actual person. So this is another place where you can take it absolutely literally, or you might look for another explanation for this particular story. 
Anyway, once Israel is wholeheartedly with the Lord, they're able to conquer Ai easily. This time, the Lord tells them they can keep the traditional booty. After that, there's a little interlude, a story stuck in the middle that doesn't quite work because it happens in a different location entirely. It's possible the author was unsure exactly when it happened, but he knows it happened around this time, so he stuck the story here. Here's the story. The Israelites go up to Shechem, which is about 20 miles north of Ai, and there Joshua builds an altar on Mount Ebal. Half the people stand on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Gerasim and shout the promised blessings from Mount Gerasim and the promised curses from Mount Ebal as a a reminder to each other of the importance of the ongoing choices they're making. Thus, they complete what the Lord instructed them to do back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. The story of the conquest then picks up again 20 miles south back near Ai. If you remember, the Lord gave Israel different rules of war for cities they conquer near where they'll be living versus rules for cities they conquer that are far away. Cities that are near have to be completely destroyed and all their inhabitants killed, so there will be no possibility of them tempting the Israelites into worshiping pagan gods. But cities that are far away can be spared, and the citizens offered slavery as an alternative to death. Now, it doesn't say how the men of Gibeon know this, but apparently they do. Or perhaps it's just common sense that people from far away would be less of a threat. In any case, the town of Gibeon is in a, a crosshairs, and uh, the men of Gibeon come up with a ruse. They dress up in raggedy old clothes and worn out shoes and put some moldy old bread in their packs and come dragging up to Joshua saying, we come from far, far away. Please make a treaty with us. We are your humble servants. See how far away from you we live. Look how moldy our bread is. It was fresh out of the oven when we started. And Joshua believes them and makes a treaty that he will not destroy them. He forgets to consult the Lord first. Imagine his surprise when three days later, these same men are at the gates of Gibeon when the Israelites show up to take the city. The men of Gibeon plead for their lives, and Joshua cannot go back on the treaty he's made. So he decides the people of Gibeon will become water carriers and woodcutters in support of the needs of the altar. And the story says that's what the people of Gibeon are to this day. That phrase is repeated frequently in the book of Joshua and is one of many clues we have that these stories were written down many hundreds of years later. I'll point out a few of the other clues as we go along. With the cities of Gilgal, Jericho, Ai, and Gibeon under control, the Israelites have a stronghold well established. The king of Jerusalem is alarmed. Concerned that he will be next, he quickly forms a coalition with the kings of four other city-states there in the southern region. The armies of the five kings march on Gibeon. Panicked, the Gibeonites send word to Joshua at Gilgal to come defend them. Joshua consults the Lord, and getting the green light, he and the Israelite army march all night long. Their surprise attack on the five kings coupled with the Lord creating complete confusion in the enemy camp, causes the enemies to flee. The Lord pursues them with hailstones so large and heavy that more are killed by hail than by the Israelite army. These were apparently large armies, for it takes quite a while for the Israelites to chase them down and destroy them, so much so that Joshua asked the Lord to make the sun and moon stand still until the work can be accomplished. According to the book of Jashar, which means the upright and which we do not have a copy of, the sun stopped in the middle of the day and delayed going down about a full day. The biblical reference to the book of Jashar is another clue that the writer of the book of Joshua relied on various other books as sources for his material. Well, during the rout, the five kings escaped to a cave and have been captured there. Joshua has the kings brought to him. He kills them and impales them and leaves their bodies until sunset 
when, in accordance with God's law, their bodies are taken down and buried in the very cave where they'd hidden. This is barbaric again, ugh, right? But this is how warfare was done. And so the Israelites continue through the entire southern region until it is subdued. There are several references to iron in the stories, and we know that the Iron Age begins around 1200 BCE. This is one of the ways we know how to date the conquest of the Promised Land. An alternative explanation, if you think it should be dated earlier, is that the author or editor of the story, who lived well after the beginning of the Iron Age, muddled these details into events that happened much earlier. Either way, the Israelites are now ready to turn their attention to the northern regions of the Promised Land. Just as in the south, a huge coalition of kings of the northern city-states gather their forces and march to fight Israel. The Lord tells Joshua, do not be afraid of them. By this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to you. Hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. I find that command interesting. Why wouldn't the Lord want the Israelites to keep the horses and chariots? Anyway, the whole thing goes the same way as it did in the south. The Israelites prevail, killing all the people, but carrying off the plunder as the Lord permits. It says that Joshua wages war against these kings for a long time, and then the land has rest from war. Well, that's a little bit of a rosy filter on the story. Although this initial conquest takes only five years, many scale battles continue over various territories for another 40 or 50 years. And in many cases, the Israelites are not able to take the city-states or to, or to hold the land. For example, they attack Jerusalem several times. Sometimes it says they win, but we see accounts later in scripture that indicate they never actually hold the city until a couple of hundred years later. In fact, there is more than one place that mentions the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jebusites, continue to live side by side with the Israelites. There's even a list in chapter 12 in Joshua's old age where the Lord talks to him about all the areas still unconquered. One such area is the land of the Philistines along the coast. Remember way back when the Israelites first approached the promised land? Remember there were two spies out of the 12 that Moses sent in who urged the Israelites to have courage and trust the Lord? Those two spies were Caleb from the tribe of Judah and Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. And now, as the promised land is divided up, Caleb gets his allotment first and Joshua, the leader, gets his allotment last. It is an intentional bracketing of the story. Well, Caleb wants the land of, around Hebron. The problem is that this land is infested with Anakites, giants. It will take years for him to actually conquer the territory. Caleb ends up advertising for help with Arba, the biggest of the giants. He offers his daughter's hand in marriage to any man who can defeat Arba. His nephew, Othniel, does the mighty deed and is given his cousin Aksa in marriage. This story comes up a couple of times here and in the first part of the book of Judges. Aksa realizes they don't have enough water in the land her father has given them. So she goes back to Caleb to ask him to give her and Othniel the upper springs and the lower springs. Remember Othniel's name. He's going to come up again next time. So after Caleb is given his special allotment for his faithfulness, the next allotment goes to the tribe of Judah. That makes sense, right? They're first among the tribes, and they get a huge piece, so huge that later the tribe of Simeon is given land within their territory for reasons we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Next comes the tribe of Joseph, second only to Judah in importance within Israel. This tribe is made up of the two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's twin sons. They get another huge allotment. Notice that Manasseh now has land on both sides of the Jordan. There's a note that they were unable to dislodge some of the Canaanites living there, but they were able to force them into slavery. Remember the five daughters of Zelophehad, 
They're from the tribe of Manasseh, and they received their promised inheritance at this time as well. You can see by reading between the lines that the conquest is more of a slow rollout than a blitzkrieg. The Israelites conquer several important towns early on, but they have to keep fighting to gain the rest of the countryside. This is consistent with what the Lord promised them earlier, that he will not drive all the inhabitants out at once, or else the wild animals will take over the land. But instead, the inhabitants will be driven out a bit at a time as the Israelites become numerous enough to populate the territory. After land is allocated to Judah and the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the Ark of the Covenant is moved from Gilgal to Shiloh in the land of Ephraim, where it will remain for quite a while. After that, the allotment to the remaining seven tribes is sort of lumped into a quick narrative. In fact, it sounds like those seven tribes were a little lazy about conquering their territories because chapter 18 tells us Joshua had to give him a kick in the pants to go get the job done. The seven tribes pick three men from each tribe to go scout out the remaining land and draw up proposed boundaries. Then they come back to Joshua at Shiloh and lots are cast to determine which tribe gets which parcel. The tribe of Dan gets land that borders that of the Philistines. But they're unable to hold the land against the Philistines, so they end up having to go find another territory and take it. They eventually move to the far northern edge of the promised land. As the Lord has instructed, the next order of business is to designate cities of refuge in each region where someone who commits murder accidentally what we would call manslaughter nowadays, can flee and stay safe from the vengeance of blood relatives until their case can be brought to trial. This seems to be really important to the Lord, and it's given a lot of emphasis in the stories. The Lord cares that the innocent not be subjected to vigilante justice. After that, the Levites are given towns to live in, along with the surrounding fields. Each of the six cities of refuge become a Levite town. There are 48 Levite towns in all, scattered all throughout Israel. Joshua 21 says the Lord then gives Israel rest on all sides. Not one of their enemies can stand against them. Not one of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel falls. Every single one is fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound like this lines up with the rest of the stories recorded here. The Danites aren't able to settle in their allotted territory. The Canaanites stubbornly refuse to leave their land. The Jebusites still live in Jerusalem. And what about the promises of no drought, no miscarriages, no adversity of any kind? How do we reconcile these promises with what we're reading in the stories? More food for thought for our breakout session. There's a lot in this part of the Bible that may have you feeling a little unsettled. If you were raised in a conservative Bible-based denomination like I was born into, you may have been taught that the Bible is literally and scientifically factual in every word and is completely consistent internally. That viewpoint has a name. It's called biblical inerrancy. As I'm using this term, it's the belief that the Bible is divinely inspired and protected as it's passed down, so it is literally correct as to history, sequence of events, science, such as biology and physics, and is internally 100% consistent with no errors of any kind. The problem is, you cannot study scripture long without running across the kinds of passages we've encountered today. And I don't want you to feel threatened or feel like the Bible is about to disintegrate under your feet. I love scripture. I hear the voice of God in it. So how do I reconcile all this internally? Well, it helps me to know that the whole idea of biblical inerrancy is a very, very new doctrine. It didn't become a thing in Christianity until the 19th century. 19th, as in the 1800s, like 
Victorian era thinking. You can check this out pretty easily online. In all the millennia before that, scripture was used more as a resource for reflection and meditation. Here are just a couple of quotes from famous Christians with respect to errors and inconsistencies they had noticed in, in the Bible. See if you can guess who said them. Um, with respect to errors that he noticed in Matthew 27, 9. Such points do not bother me particularly. That would be Martin Luther. It is well known that evangelists, the gospel writers, were not very concerned with observing time sequences. That was John Calvin. And there are many, many more, all the way back to the earliest church fathers. I mean, think about it. No one in the ancient world thought the histories they wrote would ever be taken literally in every detail. They were painting word pictures, sometimes quite extravagantly. They all knew that, both in the secular world and in the religious world. That said, I know down to the core of my being that God can and does do the sorts of amazing, miraculous things we are reading about. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the gift out with the wrapping paper. There is room for miracles. There is room for God to show up in our lives. So back to the story. Now that all the land has been allotted and each tribe has received their inheritance, Joshua releases those with land east of the Jordan to return to their homes. You'd think that'd be the end of the story. Everyone lives happily after after, but no, there's more drama. You see, once they get to their land east of the Jordan, the first thing these folks do is build a big altar to the Lord. Whoops! Remember, the Lord said there must be no sacrifices anywhere except at the one single holy place of the Lord's choosing. And right now that place is at Shiloh. Well, when the rest of Israel hears about this new altar, they become extremely alarmed. By this time, they've gotten the message loud and clear that the Lord means what he says. They gather to make war on their brothers, but cooler heads prevail and they agree to first send a delegation over to see why their brothers built this rogue altar. Phineas, the priest, leads the delegation. When they arrive, the men of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh explain that they're afraid the rest of the Israelites, over time, will forget that they're part of Israel too. They explain that they've built the altar solely as a reminder, a monument to all of Israel that they too are part of the nation. They have no intention of using it for sacrifices. Whew, that makes perfect sense to Phineas and the rest of the Israelites, and civil war is averted. We now reach the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua is 110 years old and about to die. Like Moses, he writes everything down in a book, which becomes another source used by the writer of this part of the Bible. It says Joshua's book, which we do not have, is called the Book of the Law of God. Joshua calls all the people together. And just like Moses, he reminds them of all that has happened. He urges them to follow God's every command and to be utterly conscientious about being faithful. Choose this day whom you will serve, he says. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answer, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And Joshua says, are you quite sure about this? The Lord is a God who wants you completely and totally for himself. He will bring disaster on you if you renege on this commitment. Be careful what you are promising. And the people respond, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, swear that you yourselves are witnesses to this commitment. And the people say, yes, we are witnesses. In that case, says Joshua, throw away all your idols and yield your hearts fully to the Lord your God. I can't believe they're still carrying around idols. Sheesh. And after Joshua writes all this in his book, he takes a large stone and sets it up under a big oak tree near the mercy seat there at Shiloh. 
This stone, he says, has heard all your words. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. And I want to pause right here and just put a little aside in here. Think about this verse and this this story in the context of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and saying, if, the, if you are silent, the rocks will cry out. Oh, man. Anyway, after this, Joshua sends all the people home. And Joshua, son of Nun, dies at the age of 110. Eleazar, son of Aaron, also dies, leaving his son Phinehas as high priest. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites have carried with them from Egypt, are finally buried in Shechem, the place of choosing. And we've come to our breakout sessions. Uh, today we're going to look at this. This is kind of controversial stuff. Um, we've, we've come to a, another place in scripture where the wheels sometimes fall off the wagon for people and they don't want to read it. <laughs> Because it seems contradictory and and they're afraid because they are holding the Bible in such a fragile place of of it having to be absolutely perfect in every detail and I can't read any science because it might contradict and it's just missing the point. And so, but it doesn't, even if you are able to release your grip enough to read it, as it is, and with all of your intellect and all of your knowledge, um, as well as all of your faith, uh, there's still things in here that are hard to reconcile. And that's what we're going to look at today in our um, breakout sessions. So let me see what we got going. There we are. Turn your mics on so we can participate together. Um, you want it done, Gail. Pardon? You weren't done? We weren't done. I know. There's so much. And I had, there was so much in this story to pick out. What did you guys talk about, Shirley? We had important conversations. It was okay. Good. Talk, Thank you. Talk to me. But we were, we were discussing this, you know, Basically, what you talked, we, we came to the same conclusion that you basically had already said, which if it's there, it's, the story's there for a reason. And whether it happened or not, or whether you believe it literally happened or not, um, it's more important to figure out what the reason is that it's there and what it's supposed to say to us. And we decided that story um, is there for to say about God that he's powerful and he can do whatever he wants to do. And if we need him in our lives, we can count on his power in our lives. No, that's all and true. If you, hear, if you hear any gurgling sounds or something, I have a cat behind me who has just come into heat for the first time. Oh, <laughs> so, so tell me some more about, uh, tell me some of your other groups. What, what questions did you pick and what did you come up with? Yeah, Gail, I had quite, you know, and this goes, uh, by the way, you can find on the internet whether it's true or not, you know, you got to say that, but, you know, there are scientists that say, we found when that, when that happened, right, when the sun stopped, right, <laughs> and so you got, you, you got, you got back and forth from, from scientists, so we, you know, besides number six, we were on number one, and, and while you were talking, I was actually, yeah, while you were talking, uh, I found multiple articles on on Jericho and uh, archaeologically archaeological news saying that you know we know where it's, where it is and we've been digging there and there is proof about the walls falling down. Now you know again, take everything you read on the internet with a grain of salt. So I'm just curious if what what you've done as far as your uh, your research. Right. And, and I, and I have researched it. And um, I think what you have to do is consider the sources and what their um, stake in the conclusion is. Um, and, okay. and in all of this, when you go out on the internet, you'll, you'll find people that say one way or the other, which was another reason okay. that in addition to pointing out what I think are external inconsistencies, like with the laws of physics and stuff. Um, and the fact like with the sun stopping, you know, it seems like somebody in the rest of the world might've noticed that, 
um, and written it down, things like that. Um, that uh, I also was pointing out the internal inconsistencies in the stories uh, as well. Just so I just want to, you know, from whatever angle it's easiest to approach this, one way or another, you're going to run into one of these as, as you're reading these stories. And I wanted to know, uh, I wanted us to think about how we react to that. What does that say to us? What, how does that impact us? Why do we think they put these stories in here like this? Yeah, um, well, this and, and also I think to question six um, about strengthening our faith or, or weakening it, all these stories are, are pretty, they're fairly, they're fairly consistent that, you know, if you're right with God, if you're on the same track with God, if you're doing what God's asking you for, good things are happening to you. If you're not, uh, it isn't all, you know, these aren't all like, as you said, happily ever after stories. If you've got some bad stuff dwelling in your ranks, you need to take care of it. Or you're not going to be right with God, and, and bad things are going to happen to you. Um, and I, I think that this, uh, a lot of you know, these battles and what what's happened um, with the the promised land and stuff like that is is just all consistently uh, consistent to that point. Uh, it is, and and it ends with that, you know, right? It ends with you know everybody basically swearing that they're going to stay right with God. And we know how that usually ends up. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, you know, we, we as Christians would um, look at the, the, the point that you're making and say, just be careful that you don't believe the, the, the logic goes the other direction, that if bad things are happening to, to you, therefore God is mad at you, right? Um, right. Which, which we know is is bad logic, but that yeah. seems to be the message that the the this historical writer was trying to convey. You know, this is how maybe it's not so much stated. if good things are happening to us, we're doing good. If bad things are happening to us, whoops, we we veered away from the Lord. Yeah, well, I don't think it's so much that is. I'm sorry, an important part of that is they also are doing check-ins. Yes. Check-ins with the Lord, yes. Surely. See, I don't think it's so much of the pun. If you're doing bad things, so you're going to get punished, or if you're doing, if you're getting punished, it must be you're doing bad things, as it is if you've made a covenant and you don't follow through with your covenant. I mean, we do a, we do bad things every but every time I've ever read about punishment in the Bible of any sort, it wasn't like like when they burned up the family um, Akan story like 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 three months ago was oh, <laughs> the story oh, that we had. Korah and Dothan yeah yeah yes that one um, it was for the cleansing of. Israel, it wasn't for the punishment of the bad people, you know, so to speak. Yeah. And the same thing in, in all of these situations. It's not for the purpose of punishing somebody. It's for a cleansing purpose. Um, the the people of Jericho were would have had more influence toward idolatry and stuff had they let them all live. And this was a cleansing. This was a protecting of Israel or whatever. I still have a really hard time coming to grips with God wiping out entire civilizations. I, I, I have a hard time fathoming the God that I love doing that. Yes. But I still have a hard time coming to grips with them stoning those people too. I mean, that's right. because that's just so foreign to our modern day thinking but i don't have a problem believing that god made the sun stand still or that the walls of jericho completely disappeared or whatever because i guess it's just because it's always been there in my head i've always you know when i learned the story it's always been there and it's just oh okay that happened and i i have a tendency not to question those kind of things 
as much as I do um, questioning things like wiping out entire civilizations, well, like genocide, right? Yeah. I think. I well, think well, 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 look, this is quite honestly, and I'm jumping ahead, this is nothing compared to Revelation, where it says one third <laughs> of the population is gone by this time, two thirds is gone by this time, right? So uh, I'm just interjecting there a little bit. Uh, God's wrath is real, but we have the ability to not be on that side of God. That's right. I think I heard Barb. Was that you, Barb? Yeah. Um, I think one thing about some of these things, too, and these stories, it's it's kind of like, um, well, I don't know, like, say, Aesop's Fables, or um, which we know that those were kind of like parables, like Jesus' parables, and things like that, that they're they're here for a reason to to show us things and and in it as regards the the sixth question well or even the first question about um you know uh but the sixth question about how does it make us feel the thing is is that god he yes he does there is punishment involved but again there is the purification the sanctification and he cares about us and there's always a remnant and um, that's the same for us. We have free will and we bring about some of this, you know, most of this stuff on our own. And the, th the deal is with the sun stopping, uh, you know, what, who cares if it didn't happen? I mean, okay, if you really want to prove that it did or didn't happen, well, more power to you. But it was, it was giving a, a sign. It's a sign. Uh, and it's telling us something that God can do this. I surely said this, I think he can do this. He does have that power to do it, whether he did at that time or not. I don't know, but I mean, we do have, um, we do have eclipses and things like that. And we have, uh, you know, we have scientifically, scientifically proven those things, but you know, it, it just, God is God and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient and he's all those omni things. <laughs> And, uh, go ahead. No, I'll, you finish. No. And I just think that, that sometimes we get too involved, too involved in the details, you know, uh, with that sort of thing, whether it happened or not. I mean, I was telling my group, my father was very much a literalist and, you know, as far as he was concerned, the earth was created, you know, creation happened in seven days. You know, and if it says in the Bible that it happened, then it happened. Well, and as time went by, he, we, he and I, we had very big discussions and he didn't change my mind and I didn't change his mind, but we both gave each other things to think about. So, um, you know, uh, he's been gone a long time and I it loved, and I loved having those conversations with him because he really knew his Bible uh, and he could just quote off chapter and verse but i go yeah but that's taken out of context dad oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i often wonder if it could have been the sun's the sun staying out so long what if it was a conversion of planets like what's coming up i mean mm. saturn and jupiter are supposed to be seen in twilight in a couple in a couple days and what if it was like more i mean that's one of the explanations i've always, I always heard in science class was for the star in bethlehem is as a conversion conversion of planets that was big enough you could see it during the day so if he did it an eclipse of the sun but a conversion of planets it would make the sun i mean the sun set and then he converged planets it would still make it look like it so i don't think god is above using um natural things either to do what he wants to tell us. And I, and I think that all of that um, is, is a, a good way to, you know, come at the, the problem. Um, I, I'll tell you where I end up on the whole sun in the thing is, is I think God changes our perceptions. Mm -hmm. I, I have experienced times when I was, you know, under a terrible deadline and there was absolutely no way I could meet the deadline. And it was, you know, mission critical that I, I and my team meet this particular deadline or, you know, the whole financial system in the U S would collapse, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but, but, and I would pray a, a sun standing still prayer. 
And I have to tell you, God honored it. And I know that the clock still kept ticking, but our perception of time and our ability to get done what needed to get done adjusted. Mm. And, and, and I think that that, that is um, part of what's trying to be conveyed here, you know, is that you know, we Gail, that, that, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Marley. I was just going to say that reminds me of a story my husband um, told about when he was in college, he played football and there was this one game that he was in where he said it was one of those moments where he was so completely in the zone that it felt to him like he was moving at normal time and everyone else on the field was moving in slow motion. And he was able to anticipate the movement of the other players, be in the right place at the right time. Everything was clicking and, and he felt like he was in a completely different time space from everyone else on the field. And, you know, that also could be part of the narrative that the the israelites were in that zone and so for them it felt like the day went on and on and on and on while they were feeling like they were moving in normal time yeah exactly hmm. and and i think that the that the message here is that all of these all of these things that we feel like are beyond our power are truly beyond our power. We cannot stop the sun and the moon. We cannot add one minute to, to our life, nor, um, nor can the, these Israelites who had no horses and chariots um, lay siege to a city and have it, the walls fall down. They could not conquer a fortified city without God there. And so they've written all these stories, no matter what we think the details are, no matter what we think they might have exaggerated, it just does none of that really matters, except that we understand that their point was that all good gifts have been given to us freely by our Heavenly Father. And that all of those gifts belong to the Lord from before the Lord gave them to us to during the time that we have them, you know, and that we belong to the Lord, that it's about the Lord. <laughs> it's not about us, that this was God moving to do what God intended to do and that God was going to literally move heaven and earth to make it happen. And however, whether it's our perception or whether it literally happened, none of that is the important part. The important part is that these writers are wanting us to know that all power resides in the Lord, period, and that we are safe there, no matter what it looks like, that the, that the Lord, we, we have to trust, no matter what it looks like, that the Lord intends to bless us, and that if if all we do is draw close to the Lord and remain and recognize that we are part of the Lord's family, the Lord is responsible for making it all work out. Gail, hmm. that made me think of something. My, my son, who's 21 years old, loves Veggie Tales. Uh. And he's been, he's, he's actually doing his, um, oh shoot, what do they call it? observations for um, school for teaching. Um, I forget what it's called right now, but anyway, he's doing that online because school's online. Um, he graduates this year from, and then he has to do his student teaching, but yeah. 21 years old and he's watching VeggieTales in between classes. Mm -hmm. And yesterday he was watching the one about David and Goliath. And at the end of it, or at the beginning of it, um, Larry says to Bob, Larry's a cucumber and Bob's a tomato in case anybody doesn't know. Larry says to Bob, Bob says something about the Philistines and Larry says, what's the Philippines? And he says, that's an island, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't, but that's not important right now and goes on. And all I could think of when you were saying, you know, that this, 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 and this, but 
that's not really the important part. The important, I'm here in Bob one, but that's not important right now. That's right. It's, this isn't the, the Philippines aren't the important part. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're to the end of class. Uh, we the hour goes by so darn fast. Um, but uh, are there any other points that that you guys want to bring up? Things that came up in your talks. Whoa. Well, in our group. In our group, we, we took question number two, oh, the story cool. of Akan. Mm -hmm. um, and um, sort of tried to parse out what was the message coming from that story and why Jericho was different from the other cities in the sense that God told the Israelites, do not take anything from Jericho. And when one man did, there was this huge consequence. Um, and um, sort of the, the thing that I saw in that was that Jericho was the very first city and God was sort of laying the ground rules that this is going to happen with you consulting me constantly and under my leadership. And if you start taking things into your own hands, kind of like when Moses took his rod and hit the rock instead of just speaking to it, um, God constantly reinforces that message that you know i'm giving you directions for a reason and i want you to listen and follow it because that is the path to success and with jericho the point was you're not taking anything as booty from this city you're not taking any people as slaves this city is kind of like the firstborn dedicated to me oh, and great ground rules for you to know, to remember that I'm going ahead of you in each of these stages. Oh, I love the connection to the first point. That's exactly what that was. That's exactly it. Well done. Yes. Um, and I, I also loved, I think it was Shirley's group's point um, that it, it is a, that the relationship between God and the Israelites is different. Um, mm -hmm. Special. And what we have here, as you can really see it loud and clear at the very end of the lesson when um, Joshua and the people do their back and forth and Joshua says, are you sure? Uh, you know, are you, you be a witness? Uh, you know, this is a big deal. God wants you completely 100% holy and, and you have a choice. You get to choose yes or no, you know, but, but when you make this choice, it's a big deal. That is a marriage contract. It's like a marriage and when, and, and the, the reaction the Lord has when the Israelites do these things um, that are, that break the covenant are exactly like what happens when you commit adultery. It doesn't mean the relationship can't be restored, but it's a big deal. So um, I think when thinking of that relationship as a marriage the, between the Lord and the Israelites and that uh, worshiping idols and, and, and going out and doing these other things is like adultery in that relationship um, is helpful in understanding uh, some of the more violent reactions. You know.